This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, new COVID-19 infection and death rate records are being shattered on a daily basis as we face the most brutal six-week period of the coronavirus pandemic. Exactly four weeks after former Vice President Biden won the 2020 election, President Trump unloaded before a mostly maskless crowd at a campaign rally in Georgia for two Senate Republicans facing January runoff elections. If I lost, I would say I lost. But you can't ever accept when they steal and rig and rob. Obsessed with his alternative reality of so-called voting irregularities, the president refuses to deal with what his health advisors warned could be a surge on top of a surge in coronavirus cases and deaths facing the U.S. in the next few months. They're going to be the most difficult time in the public health history of this nation, uh, largely because of the stress that it's going to put on our health care system. With the virus surging across the country, hospitals are overwhelmed with COVID-19 patients. On top of non-corona hospitalizations, are they close to the breaking point? We'll talk to the head of Nebraska Medicine, James Linder, and we'll take a look at the massive undertaking of vaccinating hundreds of millions of Americans with the head of Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Monsef Slawi. And as always, we'll check in with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Finally, Chris Krebs was head of the agency tasked with protecting the integrity of the 2020 election. He called it the most secure in history, and the president fired him. We'll talk with him. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. 
The numbers of new COVID-19 infections, new deaths, and new hospitalizations in the U.S. continue to spiral out of control. The coronavirus was the number one cause of death in the U.S. for the first time last week, surpassing both cancer and heart disease. And the staggering task of deciding who gets the vaccine first, how it will be distributed, as well as when, is underway. We begin this morning with CBS national correspondent Mark Strassman in Atlanta. Saturday night in Georgia, President Trump twisted a Senate runoff rally into a festival of falsehoods. The swing states that we're all fighting over now, I won them all by a lot. He claimed, baselessly, dark forces had conspired against a second Trump term in the White House. We're all deeply disturbed and upset by the lying, cheating, robbing, stealing that's gone on with our elections. What deeply disturbed health officials, all these rally-goers wearing no masks. Nationally, COVID has surged from crisis to calamity. Expect its peak in mid-January. One American now dies from the virus every 33 seconds. And then the really sick ones that pass away without family, that sucks a lot. Friday set a single day record, 227,000 new cases. For the first time, America's hospitals now treat more than 100,000 COVID patients. In Nevada, patients with the virus occupy 30% of all hospital beds, the country's highest rate. California's running out of ICU beds. This weekend, the state launches regional stay-at-home orders that will last at least three weeks. If we don't act now, our hospital system will be overwhelmed. Hypocrisy alert. Austin Mayor Steve Adler urging discipline in a COVID surge. You need to, you know, stay home if you can. This is not the time to, to relax. We're going to Problem was, he shot this video from his timeshare condo in Cabo San Lucas. President-elect Biden wants all of us to wear masks for the first 100 days of his administration. Could be a tough sell. President Trump insists the election was rigged, and tens of millions of Trump supporters believe him, despite zero proof. Tuesday is the federal deadline for all states to certify their votes ahead of the Electoral College meeting later this month. Every battleground state already has. With change coming in the White House, you can expect a more coordinated national response to COVID from the CDC, rather than the state-by-state -state patchwork policies over the last nine months. Margaret. Mark Strassman, thanks. We want to go now to the chief advisor of the U.S. vaccine effort. That's Operation Warp Speed. Dr. Mansif Slawi joins us from just outside of Philadelphia. Good morning. Good morning. People hear of vaccines on the horizon and they may let down their guard over the next few weeks. How long before we could see a vaccine have an impact on lowering infections? Well, I think we may start to see some impact on the most susceptible people probably in the month of January and February, but the, on a population basis for, for, for our lives to start getting back to normal, we're talking about April or May. And therefore, it's absolutely vital that everybody, A, take comfort in the fact that we have light at the end of the tunnel and find the energy in that to continue to wear our mask distance wash our hands, pay attention to what we're doing to make sure that we are there by the spring to benefit from the vaccine.
Thank you for that. Um, when it comes to actually delivering shots in the arms, Russia, the U.K. are about to begin that in the next few days. The U.S. still has not approved uh, its vaccine, uh, the first in line from Pfizer. Are you confident it will be approved in the next five days? The FDA is making sure it's doing it the way it always does it, including full transparency, public discussions with its advisory board made of independent experts. I, based on the data that I know, I expect the FDA to make a positive decision, but of course it's their decision, and as you probably know, they are totally separated and firewalled from the operation. They will make their own judgment based on the data, and I hope that the decision will be positive. Doctor, do you still expect the first vaccine shipments to be sent out by the federal government December 15th? Well, the first vaccine shipment will happen on the day after the uh, vaccine is approved. That's how we planned it. If the vaccine is approved on the 10th or on the 11th, the minute it's approved, the shipments will start. It should take them about 24 hours to make it to the various immunization sites that the various jurisdictions and states have told us to ship vaccines to them. And uh, within, I would say, 36 hours from uh, approval, potentially the first immunization could be taking place. What are the side effects of the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines? So, very important question. The vaccines have been studied in over 70,000 people, so we have a good understanding on the uh, side effect that take place within the, the six months that we have been studying this vaccine. They are primarily side effects in the injection sites. They last one to two days. In about 10 or 15 percent of people, they can have significant, not overwhelming, but significant pain, redness at the injection site that can be treated with uh, Advil or Tylenol, and also a little bit of fever and chills. Those disappear within 24 to 36 hours. There are no serious adverse events associated with these vaccines to the best of our understanding and assessment into the trial period. And we know from the hundreds of thousands of subjects that have been studied with other vaccines over mm -hmm. the past 30 or 40 years that most serious adverse events with vaccines happen within, let's say, a month and a half to two months after people completed their immunization. We have that observation with these vaccines. There are no such serious side effects. We are confident that in the long term this vaccine will remain very effective and very uh, safe. The duration of protection overall is not understood yet, mm -hmm. simply because we didn't have uh, long enough time to study it. But I read that you yourself have an eight-year-old child. Um, vaccines haven't been tested on, on small children yet. Should parents expect that kids under 12 will get a shot in the arm before they go back to school in the fall? Well, so we are working to uh, run clinical trials in adolescents and then toddlers uh, over the next four or five months. Hopefully, we may have the data by the fall, and if we have the data and the FDA reviews them and approves the use of the vaccine in uh, younger children, then they could have it. At this point, the vaccines have only been studied, all of them up to 18 years of age, not lower for Moderna, lower for Pfizer, all the way to the age of 12. Whether the FDA will already approve it to the age of 12 or will stop at the age of 18, 
uh, we will know on Thursday or Friday when the FDA approves the vaccine. I want to ask you about the government plans to distribute this. Uh, we know from Operation Warp Speed, you will have 40 million doses of vaccine this month, but the plans to vaccinate 20 million people. Why not use that first 40 million that you have to hit a broad swath of people and then uh, when supply increases, go back for that second dose? Why hit 20, not 40 out of the gate? Yes, it's a very important question and one that we have debated and studied in depth. The full immunization schedule for these vaccines is to have two doses of vaccine, either three weeks or four weeks apart. That's how we achieve 95% efficacy broadly and, in fact, 100% efficacy against severe disease. We don't know how the behavior of the vaccine would be if we omit to give the second dose at three weeks or at four weeks after the first dose. We are at the onset of the industrial manufacturing of these vaccines. Every dose we make, we are prepared to ship. But, you know, as always, early in manufacturing, there may be challenges. Sometimes vaccine doses can be delayed by a week or a few days mm -hmm. or, God forbid, by three weeks. It would be inappropriate to partially immunize large numbers of people and not complete their immunization. I think it may actually decrease the confidence in the vaccine. We want to do things by exactly how they were studied and how they have been approved. President-elect Joe Biden uh, has criticized Operation Warp Speed's plan, saying there's no detailed plan as to how you get the vaccine out of a container into an injection syringe into somebody's arm. Have you fully briefed the president-elect's team? So we haven't had any meetings yet. I know we have uh, a meeting this coming week, and we really look forward to it because actually things have been really very appropriately planned. I do think that part of the plans, or maybe part of the confusion is, part of our plans is that the, the jurisdiction and the state health agency in each state are going to take on the responsibility and accountability of actually delivering the vaccine. We plan to have all the ancillary material, the syringes, the needles, the swabs, everything co-localized with the vaccine. Uh, so I think the plans are there, and I feel confident that once we will explain it, everything in detail, I hope uh, that the new transition teams will understand that things are well planned. And frankly, our commitment is to make sure these vaccines make it safely to the U.S. population, and we will do the best we can to make that happen through the transition without any interruption. All right. Dr. Slawi, good luck with that. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The state of Illinois recorded more coronavirus deaths than any other state in the past seven days, according to the CDC. We want to go now to the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, who we've periodically checked in with during this crisis. Good morning to you. Uh, Good morning, Margaret. Madam Mayor, you issued a stay-at-home order uh, that'll expire in about 10 days. Uh, is that kind of directive helping you control the spread? Does it make a dent when you have an outbreak like this? Well, I, I think it has. Um, we went from um, well over 2,000 cases a day. Um, now we're down to about 1,300. Not where we want to be by any stretch, but a significant improvement just over a couple of weeks. We're still nervously 
uh, watching the numbers to see if there's going to be a post-Thanksgiving uh, surge. But I think everything that we can do to heighten people's awareness that this second surge is just as deadly, if not more so than the first, is critically important. So I do think that these uh, advisories make a difference. Early on in this pandemic, when you joined us, you told us half of those dying of COVID in Chicago were black, despite making up just 30% of your population. Have those numbers improved? They have improved, but there's still a concern. Um, we're seeing uh, people of color, both black and Latinx, uh, leading in the um, number of cases uh, infected, but also leading uh, in deaths. We've done a lot, I think. Um, the, certainly the treatments have improved because we've learned a lot more about this virus, but it's still a concern because of the underlying health disparities that bring on comorbidities that make black and brown Chicagoans more susceptible uh, to the worst results of this disease. Well, we know from Dr. Slaway that, that hope is on the horizon in terms of this vaccine and the federal government plans to directly supply the vaccine to the mayors of major cities like Chicago. So I'm wondering how much discretion you will get as mayor to decide who goes first and who goes last. Well, we really get no discretion because part of the agreement with the, uh, the federal government is that we agree to the specific uh, prioritization protocol that they put forward. But I think the good news about that for a city like Chicago is obviously our frontline healthcare workers are going to get it. They are very diverse. Our essential workers will be next in the queue. They are extraordinarily diverse and really lean towards uh, people of color. So there will be an equity lens as it applies to uh, distribution of the vaccine here in Chicago. Well, how do you decide who's frontline, who's essential, and, and when will you be able to vaccinate them all? Well, a lot of that, again, is defined by the CDC. We expect to get the first uh, tranche of uh, um, vaccines here in the next couple of weeks. That's already um, predetermined to go to the frontline workers who are dealing directly uh, with COVID patients. We expect to get around 23,000 doses. Now, that's a fraction of what we will need, but we've been working with our hospital partners to identify um, those within their workforce um, who are going to be front of the queue uh, to get the early doses of the vaccine. But that, for example, those are doctors and nurses. Those aren't firefighters. They are not. The, 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 the first responders will be in the second wave. Um, first, we've got to make sure that we get the frontline um, healthcare workers vaccinated. First responders, though, are very much at the top of the list, as are essential workers, those folks who have no choice but to go out and work and on the front lines. So we'll be taking care of them as well. But the, the most important thing is making sure that we get a robust supply of the vaccine so we can get it distributed as effectively as possible. When it comes to uh, racial disparities, we know from a study done by the NAACP, only 14 percent of black people trust that a vaccine will be safe. 18 percent trust it will be effective. And among Latinos, 34 percent trust its safety. How are you going to convince your constituents to take the vaccine? Well, I think we, we're going to do this in a number of ways. Number one, uh, we have organized here locally a scientific advisory panel made up to, of diverse um, practitioners who are going to verify and, and, and validate uh, the process by which this vaccine 
um, has been produced. So I think that's critically important. We're then also looking at a variety of trusted community uh, leaders from the medical profession, but also uh, local stakeholders uh, who themselves um, are also going to be on the front lines of getting uh, this vaccine. We've launched a campaign going door to door, particularly in those neighborhoods where uh, the virus is um, really uh, continues to be a challenge, where there's high percent positivity case rates. So that's been ongoing and we're bringing them news of the vaccine and why it's so important. But bottom line is we've got to get local trusted leaders who are going to validate why it's important uh, to take the vaccine. I can talk all I want, but people have to trust their neighbors um, and uh, stakeholders in the community. And that's why we've activated this group of folks to be um, really the spokespeople about the vaccine. You know, one of the the sticking points in Congress right now over uh, providing relief to the American people financially is state and local money. You have taken a loan, uh, $450 million in the short term. You're even borrowing against future revenue from the sale of recreational marijuana in order to try to avoid layoffs. What are you going to do if Congress doesn't provide funds to you? Well, we we passed a budget on the assumption that we were not going to get any additional federal monies. Now, that would be a tragedy, not just for uh, Chicago Um, but also for the people who really depend upon the kind of services that the government provides, our seniors, our young people, the most vulnerable populations, homeless and and so forth. So I hope that um, the partisan divide that has prevented a package from getting um, to the president's desk will actually be broken through. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the devastation of our economy, it's not just blue straits. It's red. It's purple. Everyone has been affected by COVID-19 economic impacts. And we just need to make sure as mayors um, and governors, we continue uh, to beat that drum so Congress does its work and gets a package to the president's desk um, for signature. All right. Um, Mayor Lightfoot, thank you for joining us this morning. The UK plans to begin providing Pfizer vaccine shots this week. They will be the first country to do so. Senior foreign correspondent Liz Palmer reports from London. Good morning. With the rollout of the vaccine in Europe now tantalizingly close, the challenge is to stop people from throwing caution to the winds. And to that end, a lot of countries are doubling down on the rules. Once Italy lifted its severest restrictions, Italians returned to church, masked and socially distanced. But they're not going far this Christmas. Italy has forbidden all regional travel. In London, COVID rules were relaxed this week so businesses could reopen. Shopping is allowed, but visits with friends indoors is not. And across the continent, the elderly are being shielded from visitors, though a kiss through plastic at this home in France is clearly better than no kiss at all. And while we're on the subject, pity the poor mistletoe growers. There was a bumper crop in the UK this year, but now that kissing is a public health hazard, no one's buying. COVID hit a holiday ritual in Bethlehem too. With no crowd allowed in Manger Square this year, the traditional tree was lit, but for the TV cameras only. Many developing countries like Brazil are struggling with surging COVID infections, but there is no quick vaccine relief in sight for them. And people have given up following the rules with lethal consequences. 
By contrast, amid political fanfare, Russia started offering its Sputnik vaccine this weekend, even though final testing on it isn't complete. You can sign up online and it is free, but early reports suggest not everyone's convinced. Here in Britain, the health service is going to start vaccinating people sometime in the next couple of days. And the hot rumor is that one of the very first public figures to get the jab is going to be 94-year-old Queen Elizabeth. Margaret? Liz Palmer, thank you. As COVID surges, the economy is stalling. Hiring dropped off in recent weeks just as 12 million Americans are set to lose federal unemployment benefits this month unless Congress takes swift action. Democrats and Republicans still do not agree on how much financial support to provide the American people. But there does appear now to be new interest on both sides to try to do something. Four million Americans face eviction in the next two months. Even more, about 17 million, say they're behind on their rent or mortgage payment. Just a reminder that this pandemic is more than just a health crisis. If you would like to help those struggling, go to facethenation.com for a list of resources. We'll be right back with Nebraska Medicine CEO, Dr. James Linder, former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Stay with us. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Nebraska medicine is known as a leader in infectious diseases. The hospital cared for Ebola patients in 2014 and treated some of the first U.S. COVID-19 patients back in February. CEO Dr. James Linder joins us from Omaha this morning. Good morning to you, doctor. Good morning, Margaret. We heard a very sobering warning from the CDC director this week uh, when he said this country is about to face the most difficult period in the public health history of our nation. And he said that's because of the stress that's going to be put on our health care system. What does that mean for frontline workers at your hospitals? Well, I think the uh, CDC director is accurate in that statement. Uh, we've been dealing with a public health crisis for 10 months now and our healthcare workers have been at the tip of the spear in battling the pandemic, in dealing with short supplies, and dealing with a patchwork of policies that could control the virus. I think if you look at the uh, hospitals in America, uh, many of them are at the breaking point. Some may have broken. Uh, we had some challenges in the last couple weeks in Nebraska, but by working together, we were able to navigate that and make sure that care was available to everyone. 
You know, a video from one of your nurses went viral last month, and in it she described the, the, the staffing shortages, and she described her own personal frustration that she can't just rush in and help a COVID patient. It takes time to have to put on the PPE required to even enter the room. What is it like? Can you describe what it is like to be a COVID patient right now? Uh, Everyone should want to avoid being a COVID patient, uh, not only for the experience if they are in the hospital, but for the potential long-term consequences of this virus. Uh, the staff uh, has done a remarkable job in working together and using their personal protective equipment to minimize any risk of personal exposure. But it is a very challenging time. And uh, you know, when we talk about hospitals and hospital beds, uh, that's a very concrete number. But those hospitals and beds are not of any value unless you have the nurses, the physicians, the pharmacists, the technologists, the facilities people to deliver the care that makes people well. And those people really are stretched to the limit. I'm rec uh, fully aware of this stress on the entire country and the entire world. But uh, there's always a sense of security and peace in knowing that health care is available. But we are uh, challenging that right now. We're challenging that just because of the sheer numbers um, overwhelming the system is what you're talking about. Can you say what that means practically speaking? Are, are we talking about doctors having to make decisions on who to treat and, and who not to help? Um, I think that first we should realize that prior to the pandemic, many hospitals were running near capacity. Uh, and then with the addition of 20% more patients requiring care, that makes it very challenging to uh, take care of the cancer patients, the heart disease, the strokes, the trauma that have not gone away. So healthcare providers are faced with the challenge of dealing with 80% of the patients that have those other conditions and 15, 20, 25 or percent more depending on geography of patients who have COVID. So there uh, are areas of the country that are what are called crisis standards of care where the actual standard of care has changed mm -hmm. uh, because there aren't adequate staff uh, supplies or other resources. We have plans for that in Nebraska, but we are not at that point right now. I want to make that very clear. But, but you, it's you, a very challenging time for all of healthcare. And you have suspended elective surgeries. Um, would you advise other hospitals to do that now? What we've done is uh, postponed those procedures that could safely be postponed, say, for four to 12 weeks. Uh, the term elective surgery is too broad a blanket because uh, if you have uh, a tumor, uh, you can maybe postpone the removal of that for a short period of time. But mentally, that patient wants the operation to remove that tumor. Mm -hmm. So uh, the COVID uh, pandemic is affecting all aspects of healthcare. Nebraska's governor said that he expects to get about 100,000 doses of the vaccine during the month of December. Uh, do you know when you will receive it at your hospitals and what is your plan to distribute it to your employees? How do you decide who qualifies? Well, we uh, have begun the process of uh, assuring which healthcare workers want to take the vaccine and our uh, policy would be to deal with the frontline workers in our hospital. And a lot of that is dependent on the number of doses we receive uh, for distribution either next week or the week after. You don't know we that number yet? We don't know yet? the exact number yet. No, we do not.
But how do you decide? And, and when you say you're asking if people are willing to take it, are a large number of your employees unwilling to take the vaccine? No, our surveys indicate well over 90% of individuals uh, are gonna roll up their sleeves on day one and be able to take it. We have to stratify the distribution of the vaccine because if there are any side effects, we don't want uh, too many people that say would be home for a day or two. So when you say you're, you're prioritizing frontline, what does that mean? Because healthcare means everyone from the, the janitors cleaning up the room to the doctors intubating patients. Who goes first and who goes last? Uh, that's a wonderful question, Margaret. And we uh, will be first dealing with the people who are in the room. So your nurses, your doctors, your patient care techs, your respiratory technicians, the environmental services, people that have to turn rooms over. Those are the people that should first get the vaccine. Uh, and uh, we anticipate though that perhaps by the end of December, if the state does receive 100,000 doses, almost every healthcare provider in Nebraska and uh, most of the individuals who are in long-term care environments can be vaccinated. But the supply chain of the virus, of the vaccine is still uh, not solid. So we, we just are preparing for delivering it to everyone, but we'll see what we get. We wish you good luck, doctor. Thank you for your time this morning. And we're back with former FDA commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who also sits on the board of directors at Pfizer, one of the vaccine makers awaiting approval from the FDA here in the U.S. He joins us from Westport, Connecticut this morning. So, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, not only are infections spiking, so are deaths. The CDC director put the number at 450,000 people dead by February. That is double where we are right now. Do you agree with that forecast? Well, look, I think we have a worsening situation around the country. Things are going to continue to get worse for the next four to six weeks. We're not likely to see a peak in the number of infections until about the end of December, maybe into January. And we're going to see a peak in the number of deaths and hospitalizations probably at some point in the middle of January. So as bad as things are right now, they're going to get a lot worse. Um, I think by the end of the year, we'll be at probably about 300,000 deaths. And by the end of January, we could be pushing 400,000 deaths. We're going to see consistently probably 2,000 deaths a day. And as we get into January towards the peak, we're gonna see over 3,000 3, deaths a day, unfortunately, and we maybe get close to 4,000 deaths a day. So this is gonna get a lot worse before it starts to resolve. Right now, the statistic is that about 1.7% of diagnosed cases will succumb to the infection within 22 days. That has held pretty steady. So there's a grim future right now ahead of us for the next six weeks. People really need to protect themselves. Uh, understood. And we obviously urge everyone to protect themselves. You know, last week, we saw a, the largest surge in deaths in long-term care facilities. This is the largest surge since June. This is the elderly. If someone watching at home has a loved one in one of those facilities right now, what do you recommend that they do? Look, I think that you need to protect the elderly in these facilities by probably not visiting right now, not having people go into those facilities. And the facilities themselves really need to be vigilant about their staff, testing their staff and making sure the staff don't walk the infection into those facilities. Because in many cases, that's how it's getting into these, these institutions. People are bringing it in, either visitors or, or staff. Right now, visitors aren't allowed in most of these facilities. Hopefully, we'll be able to vaccinate these individuals and the staff very soon. The vaccines are going to be prioritized to these staffs, and, and hopefully the vaccines will be available soon and moved into these facilities. And one dose can be partially protective, especially in younger individuals. So the vaccines could start to have an impact right away. 
Well, it's interesting you say that because I asked Dr. Slowey about that idea of whether to vaccinate 40 million people out of the gate since they have 40 million doses um, versus the more conservative plan of going with 20 so that they have two doses set to go, keeping one in reserve. Dr. Slowey said it was, you know, to be careful in case of manufacturing issues. Um, do you think that was the right call? Look, I would be trying to push out as much vaccine as possible, recognizing that the supply ramps very quickly in 2021. And you have to take a little bit of a risk that the supply is going to be there in 2021 to give everyone who gets vaccinated in 2020 the second dose. This is a crisis. We need to get as many vaccines in arms as possible, in my view. Um, and that means pushing out all the available supply or most of it. You might want to hold a little bit in reserve, but not much. Uh, the supply does ramp. The first dose is partially protective, probably. The data does suggest that. Uh, so I think we want to spread as much vaccine as possible. If we have if we can't get the people who get their first dose, the second dose in 2021, we're going to have bigger problems than just the fact that th those people didn't get the second dose of vaccination. So we need to take a little bit of risk here. To your point, uh, scientists at the University of Washington estimate vaccines will save 9000 U.S. lives before April, but they say 14000 more could be saved if there is a rapid scale up, scale up of vaccines among high risk individuals. What does a more aggressive push look like? Well, we are where we are with the supply. So the supply will ramp as we get into 2021, but there's no way we're going to be able to accelerate that between now and, say, March. I think um, if you want to maximize preservation of life, you would vaccinate older Americans. You would prioritize vaccinating older Americans and Americans with um, comorbid conditions that if they do get COVID, they're more likely to have a bad outcome, more likely to die from COVID. Those decisions are going to be made very soon about who that second tranche of people to be vaccinated is. I'm talking to a number of governors, and I think governors are going to prioritize their older populations and in some targeted populations in their states where certain communities have been hit especially hard by COVID. They'll go in and make some targeted decisions. You sit on the board of Pfizer, as we said. Pfizer said they're not going to hit their 2020 manufacturing target. Does that mean an actual shortage of vaccine? No, what happened was the manufacturing got delayed. There were some supply chain issues, but the vaccine that they intended to produce in 2020 now gets pushed into 2021. Um, this is a supply chain that ramps very quickly as, you, as time progresses. So every time you, a week gets pushed from 2020 into 2021, you, you lose a lot of supply in 2020, and that supply gets pushed into the next year. So the supply stays the same. It's just not going to be available this year. But those doses, the doses that have been promised right now have been made. So Pfizer has said that they'll have 50 million doses available globally in 2020. Those doses, by and large, have been made. And in the U.K., Right after the authorization, trucks rolled into the United Kingdom through the channel and actually delivered those doses. They're now sitting in the United Kingdom ready to go, and they're going to start vaccinating probably on Tuesday. And U.K. authorities have said they may be able to vaccinate 800,000 people in the first week. But the idea that a U.S.-based company will start vaccinating in another country before the United States caused some consternation this week and some finger-pointing at your old agency that they were slow-rolling approval. Would you run this process differently? Well, look, FDA made some deliberate decisions, I think, for sound reasons that delayed this by not months, but probably weeks. They, they committed to have an open advisory committee that was to inspire public confidence and provide transparency uh, around the approval process and the clinical data. That probably added a week or two to this process. 
They also required that manufacturers have at least two months of safety data on 50% of the patients before they even file their applications. So that delayed the ability to file an application till the end of November. So some of those applications perhaps could have been filed in early November based on the interim analysis, the first tranche of data showing that these vaccines were more than 90% effective, but the manufacturers had to wait a couple of weeks to file that because of that requirement. There's sound reasons why the FDA did that. They wanted to provide a greater degree of public assurance and also get a better look at the data, but it did delay this by a couple of weeks at least. So we just have to accept that. So in other words, yes, you would have done a few things differently, um, but we will be standing by <laughs> for this. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you as always for your analysis. We'll be right back. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Mr. President, it looks like you likely lost the state of Georgia. We're investigating. There's always a possibility. I get it. And you have the rights to go through the courts. What you don't have the ability to do, and you need to step up and say this, is stop inspiring people to commit potential acts of violence. Someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to get shot. Someone's going to get killed. That was Gabriel Sterling, a Republican election official in the state of Georgia, warning President Trump about the potential impact of his continued unsubstantiated claims of a vast conspiracy. Yet last night, the president repeated many of those same unfounded claims at a rally in the state of Georgia. For more on the security of the 2020 election, we want to go now to the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. Good to have you here. You watch that morning, rally. <laughs> Good morning. You watched that rally. I know that because you tweeted last night and you said it was an active, coordinated disinformation campaign to undermine confidence in our elections. Why do you think the commander in chief is doing that? Look, I, I don't know if it's intentional or if, or if it's willful blindness, but the, the result of the 2020 election is clear. The key states certainly have certified over the last several days and will continue to certify in the run-up to the seating of the Electoral College on December 14th. But uh, this race is over. We've got to get ready for January 20th and the next administration. But just 27 congressional Republicans have acknowledged Joe Biden's victory as president-elect. That's 27 out of 249. Why are the majority of Republicans remaining silent on what you're describing here as a security risk? I, I, again, I can't speak to what their motivations are to those that have spoken up. Uh, It's the right thing to do. And I think the rest of them have to acknowledge that the system in place 
to conduct the election uh, was legitimate, and per particularly in the House, um, they've accepted their outcomes and their races. Uh, I don't see any difference here between the, the presidential race. It is well past the time where all leaders of the Republican Party need to accept the outcome of this race and uh, move on and, and accept uh, that, that Joe Biden is the president-elect. When you say a disinformation campaign, I mean, you're looking at this from a national security point of view, where you were trying to stop foreign governments from undermining confidence in our elections. What do you think the consequence of this coming from the president of the United States is on our democracy? I do think it's corrosive to confidence in the election, in, in democracy. You know, the, the point of elections, it's, it's often been said by election officials, is that you're, you're trying to convince the loser that they lost. Uh, but to do that, you have to have willing participants that are, that are honest brokers. And we're just not seeing this right now. You know, every court case or filing uh, has been, been rejected by, uh, by the courts. And so any fraud claims, any security claims, any, any sorts of things along those lines, uh, we, we're just not seeing supportive, supporting evidence. And again, it is time to move on. You should have confidence, particularly Georgia voters should have confidence in the election and they need to get out for the January 5th Senate runoff. You uh, have described yourself as a, as a lifelong Republican. You served President Bush, you served under President Trump. Um, why do you think the party's scared to do all the things you're laying out? I, again, I, I don't know what is behind this, uh, what their motivations are, uh, but, but again, it is time for leaders in the national security community and the, in the Republican Party to mm -hmm. stand up, to accept the results and move forward. We, we cannot allow this to continue certainly not past January 20th, certainly not for the next four years. Any sort of lost cause move, movement would be just horribly destructive to, to, uh, to democracy. So in your former agency, uh, before President Trump uh, fired you, um, you had a, a variety of responsibilities uh, on the cyber front. And you've talked about disinformation online around the vaccine, for example. We know the State Department has quietly called out Russia for spreading disinformation about the vaccine. Why isn't Homeland Security right now launching a campaign to educate the American public about a vaccine being safe? So early on in COVID, in fact, it was January, uh, March 13th was the day I think the world changed for most folks. Uh, we launched an effort to both help the vaccine developers as well as the public health care uh, institutions, hospitals, uh, the, the protective equipment manufacturers, and yes, the therapeutics and, and vaccine developers. We launched a campaign, uh, a cybersecurity focused campaign to secure their, 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 uh, their businesses and their enterprise. But at the same time, we saw uh, some disinformation emerging related to the coronavirus and including just farcical claims like 5G uh, telecommunications tower, telephone towers spread the coronavirus. So we actually saw vandalism in the United Kingdom. So we wanted to get that here. FEMA did launch a, uh, a, a similar rumor control effort on, uh, on the coronavirus. We are going to have to do much, much more going forward to counter uh, the vaccine claims that we're going to hear, the anti-vaxxer type claims, those have been previously and will be in the future supported and amplified 
by foreign powers that don't share our same interests. So we, we need to get mechanisms like that up and running uh, fast. How much of that is foreign? How much of that is domestic? It, it's hard to say. Um, there's certainly both. But the more that we get professionals like Dr. Gottlieb, who I worked with closely uh, back in government, more we get professionals like that out there describing the facts about the vaccine, uh, it, that's going to be one of those critical aspects going forward. Homeland Security disclosed this past Thursday um, that cyber attacks are underway at companies and government organizations involved in distributing the vaccine. IBM went public um, saying they were very sophisticated, which indicates that a country, another government was possibly behind it. Who has the ability and the intent to do something like that? So the traditional powers, the, the big four of Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, we have, we have seen to some extent all four of those, uh, those countries doing some kind of espionage or spying, trying to get intellectual property related to uh, the, the, the vaccine. And in fact, just how we're doing as a country policy-wise and uh, in terms of health impact. Uh, what we have been thinking through, what we had been thinking through at CISA was, was not just the vaccine developers, but their entire supply chain. And really trying to look through those for those critical weak spots. We called it the, the ball bearing strategy, looking for those, those key elements that could, could cause the entire process to, to collapse. And, and that's going to be critical going forward. So it's not just about Moderna and some of the others that are developing the vaccine. It's their supply chains. It's the distribution channels, public health institutions. Those are the folks that we have to continue to spread cybersecurity uh, support to uh, from the national security community and from the private sector. All right. Important message over the coming weeks. Thank you, Chris Krebs, for joining us today. And we will be back in a moment. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Chief Advisor for Operation Warp Speed, Dr. Monsef Slawi, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, Nebraska Medicine CEO, Dr. James Linder, former FDA Commissioner, Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and the former Director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency, Chris Krebs. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter and Instagram. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. 
Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.